Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Well, hello, and welcome back to our CIS podcast, uh, Cybersecurity Where You Are. I'm Tony Sager, uh, your co-host today, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sean Atkinson. Oh, hello. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, welcome, Sean. We, we uh, occasionally do a solo uh, activities with a guest, and but it's even uh, more fun when we get together and get to sort of uh, catch up on things and talk a little bit about some of the things that we hope are of interest to you. And we're taking a little different approach uh, today. It's today's show. No guests today, other than we're uh, hosting and guesting each other. Just a little chance to uh, talk about some, uh, I'll say, lighter and deeper issues about cybersecurity all at the same time. So, our, and, and we're going to frame them around uh, the soon-to-be world-famous Atkinson 9. <laughs> that is a series of questions that Sean has kind of kept in his hip pocket and he pulls out for either a guest or for a conversation. And uh, I'll have to admit, Sean, you're going to have to give me some backstory on this because when I first looked at this list, I thought, oh boy, yet another listicle or, you know, kind of a lightweight thing. As I went through them, I thought, oh, this is actually leading to some pretty heavy heavy thinking about my philosophy of cybersecurity. So you got me on that one. You really, there's more to it than just a simple list of questions. But how about giving us a little bit of the backstory on the idea and how you use it? Um, so the idea really had stemmed from uh, watching the actor's studio, James Lipton and uh, his famous set of questions. And I thought, you know, as we're starting to do this podcast and we're, you know, working with individuals, you know, professionals in the field, I want to get a little bit of a different perspective from them and have something, you know, to round out the uh, the interview and just to really get into their minds and, and see what was going on in terms of cybersecurity, how they got where they are, what would they never want to do. And so there was just nine questions that came up and, uh really thought it would just be fun uh, as an element to uh, really start to build out and understand the person, you know, in the uh, in the interview, as it were. Uh, and, you know, received, um, you know, some acclaim, as it were. Uh, you know, they'll be soonly famous, as you mentioned. <laughs> and uh, my interest here is to get your thoughts, you know, as, as building up and really the, the whole element of cybersecurity uh, from your frame, your perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't wait. Uh, I'm really looking forward to today's podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds like a great backstory and a great idea. Again, I'm really warmed up to it once once you got me to think about it a little bit. So I'll let you start off with the first question. How's that? And I'll, I'll, uh, sure. I'm not sure how deep my absolutely. mind will be, but I'm happy to answer any question you throw at me. Sure. Absolutely. So, Tony, let's start then. What is your favorite CIS control from any particular version? Um, what is your favorite mm -hmm. CIS control? Uh, tough one. You know, like choosing among your children. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I have to admit, um, I have a soft spot in my cyber heart for what is now number four, secure configuration, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. One is that I think its value is really high and perhaps underappreciated. And for me professionally, it was kind of a turning point in my thinking about cybersecurity. So I was hired into NSA in the 70s as a vulnerability analyst, which has a long and proud history. You know, so the, and the goal there is you, you look at other people's stuff, whether it's mathematics of 
cryptographic algorithms or software or hardware or designs, and you find flaws, poke holes at it, and you walk away proudly with no responsibility to fix it. I mean, that is great work if you can get it, right? But, you know, at some point it became less satisfying because you keep finding the same things over and over again. And it wasn't my idea, certainly, but there was a, a group uh, that was kind of a sister group of mine that started to codify their recommendations for configuration, specifically for Windows desktops and servers in the Defense Department. And we called those the NSA security guides. And you know, and it, it was a, a good thing to do, right? Both to train our own people, but to hand out to customers, hey, when we come to visit you, to visit your live operational system, this is what we'll look for. And it started to dawn on me that, well, there's something really important going on here. And, and you know, in my mind, it went from like a nice thing to do to an essential thing to do. And it started to raise big questions to me, like, so what is the value of a, a security guidance, right? If I set a registry key to a certain value, uh, what can I express its security function and its value in some meaningful, repeatable way? And that those kinds of questions have really haunted me now for a couple of decades and I think have been really important. And for me, it also made the leap from kind of theoretically attacking systems, right? Looking at the mathematics of cryptography and protocols and such to the real life. Oh, no, this is about real machines sitting on desktops or in server rooms and they're they never look the way they came out of the box. They never look the way your policy intended them. You know, so you have to really look at real life. And so for me, so so there's a lot wrapped up in that. It's a longish answer there, Sean. But you know, to me, that always strikes me as kind of the heart of the the security defense management problem. And to do it well, right, to manage configurations well, also implies that you have to do a lot of other things well. You know, and so the other controls come in, like knowing what you have hardware-wise knowing who has permission, right, to change things, knowing uh, who has permission to install software and so forth. So I know it's a long answer, but it's, for me, I think uh, that secure configuration stuff is, is uh, really helped both rate, change my thinking about security, but also has just high importance on its own. And I think as you've seen, the, the industry itself is harnessing that in order to provide those elements within configuration. As you mentioned, it's a, it's a solid foundation of any security program. Without it, you know, I think you, you it's a house of cards that's ready to fall. So 100%. Yeah. That's awesome. So what's your thinking on that, Sean? Have you have you given a, a favorite control? And again, then oh, my feelings won't be hurt. Pick, with, pick whatever works for you. <laughs> so I'm going version 8, uh, obviously the newest version. Okay. Control 3 had a massive promotion is data, data protection. Ah. So I'd always gone, and my underlying philosophy is if you know the data, you know a lot about an organization. You know a lot about the security requirements of that organization. Mm -hmm. So where the data is, who has access to it, where is it stored, how is it transferred, that opens up a number of questions that then the other controls, similar to your adage with control four provides, right? Those questions have to be answered with the other controls. But I love it as a, uh, I love the fact that it's at three now. Uh, I see it as a promotion mm -hmm. and uh, just uh, wonderful in terms of the underlying capabilities that have been added over time, obviously, we've seen the controls. I've been a obviously a controls fan since version five when I first adopted it within an organization and just seeing the progress 
um, and always have advocated, I think data should be higher. I think data should be higher. And to yeah. see it uh, at those levels, uh, you know, within you know, what I'll call the top five is, uh, I think, great. And, and does it justice? Because it is so important. We're in the information age uh, and just making sure data is has that particular perspective and is it, you know, in people's minds all the time. Because it's, it's not only security by design now, it's privacy by design. There's a lot more control about how we use and manage data. So that would be mm -hmm. my favorite. No, I think it's, that's well said, John. And, and you captured, you know, the, the discussions around the positioning of, of data as number three were some of the liveliest in a, in a positive sense uh, uh, in the development of version eight of the controls. And uh, some of it was brought to light by the, uh, the massive shift to work from home. You know that where is our data? <laughs> we don't know. You know, and it moves from uh, the focus on I'll call it technology and physical control, right? What's in our servers, in our server room, right, in our geographic location, to oh my gosh, you know, it's in wherever people are working, you know, whatever home office they happen to have. And so I think that you're you're right that it also I think is a health helpful sort of I'll call it psychological shift from focus on technology to focus on content. Right, that's the, the data, as you said, that's what really matters, right? That's what people are either trying to protect or they want to have confidence in its integrity or, you know, its source. And so it really was a, uh, again, a healthy discussion. And it also reflects, you know, part of the, um, what the controls try to do, right? Bring sort of a mix of the policy view with a sort of technologist view with the data view and the, uh, the enterprises needs in sort of Figure that out, right? Where where should the priorities be? So I, I think that's a very uh, a, a wise you know wise uh, a favorite there and well chosen. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Sure. No, I think it does give you a tactical advantage to to think like that as well. Mm -hmm. And again, the control set no, not only policy but the the implementation of a control. Mm -hmm. There's none better. It, it, what a framework. It's fantastic. All right. Thank you, thank you. Let me then jump into the second question, Tony. So All here right. is, what is the least favorite part of your profession? The least favorite part? Hmm. One, of the things I, uh, one of the things I've talked about a lot in the last several years, Sean, is what I'll call the um, wizardry model of security. You know, that is, and this is an amazing business, right? Great technology, very clever people. And so, you know, that's 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 really important, and that isn't going away. But uh, we have treated the whole business, especially of defense, as as what I call wizardry. <laughs> you know, that is the bad guys are ten feet tall, and they can do anything. And oh my gosh, we're helpless against the nation states. And and so, if you treat this as wizardry, kind of magic, then you have no defense against that except for your own wizardry, right? You have to hire equally magical people to, and, and you, you hope for magical technology. And, uh, you know, I can, and that, that makes sense in a new emerging technical area with lots of uncertainties and uh, sort of limited mass understanding. But, you know, like a, like a, lot, like a lot of other risk areas in our lives, right? You, you would hope it would mature at some point to have be more data-driven, more science-based, right? More repeatable, more, you know, more specific in what we look for, as opposed to, you know, what's the shiniest, flashiest thing that I see at a trade show, you know, and, and I, and there is a, you know, this is a very difficult area because um, most executives don't have much, what I'll call decision intuition. You know, it's hard for them to sort of see good from bad, right? Because they didn't grow up in this kind of IT-ish technology. I certainly saw that in the government in spades, especially for the military. 
uh, you know, highly trained people who don't really understand technology. And so to them, it's all kind of mysterious. So they count on wizards. But, you know, this is uh, in a in a healthy way. I think we're in what I call the emergence from wizardry stage, right? This is becoming, and this is your wheelhouse. This is, yes, we need technology, we need wizardry, but this is about sound business decision-making, right? We're weighing risks here and we look, and we need to understand the costs. We need to understand the implications, right? And we need to understand the downstream implications, for example, in supply chains. And these are much greater than technical issues. They're a mix of economic issues and sort of risk modeling and technology kind of all coming together. And so we've been kind of slower than one, one might like to move down this route. You know, it, because uh, I always say wizardry is a, is a great job security for old guys like me, but it's not very good public policy. <laughs> you know, that is, and you know what I mean? It's, um, you know, it's great to be a wizard, right? <laughs> you know, to, for people to wait, breathlessly wait for you to you know, pontificate and say things. But what we have to say from that model is often not very actionable, right? It may sound clever, but it's not, it's not how you run a business. And so we're seeing, I think, a, a rapid now, I'll call it uh, mainstreaming of the way we think about cyber risk. And we have to weigh how much am I going to spend on si to deal with cyber risk? You know, can I quantify it in some way? Uh, that's competing with other risks, right? And it's a competing for the decision time of executives and companies and for uh, law firms and for insurance companies and for auditors and regulators, right? So it's a really different model than what I grew up with. And it feels too slow to me, to be honest. So it feels like we... we... Now, I understand it's very complicated. I, I sometimes tell the story uh, of, you know, I'm old enough that my father was old enough that when he had a bad tooth, it wasn't pulled by a certified dentist because there wasn't such a thing. It was pulled by the traveling barber in the backwoods of West Virginia. You know, they got you in a chair and for an extra quarter, you know, if you got a rotten tooth, they'll pull it out with a pair of pliers. And you know, it sounds primitive, but you know, we all start somewhere, right? In, in terms of risk and understanding. And now you, you eventually codify things and you have an accepted body of knowledge and you have credentialing for practitioners. And so we're you know, we're moving in the right direction. And the only question is, can we get there more quickly? But to me, it's been kind of slow, slower than I would like to see. And again, recognizing the complexity of the problem. Yeah. No, fantastic. Absolutely. Completely though with you, Tony, because um, really my answer to that question, it's very similar, is it's really the fear and the uncertainty and the doubt that's within the industry that's getting these bells and whistles to be promoted. And I get that there's, you know, an underlying need and capability that a lot of these areas have, but it, it's, it feels like it's too much. You're not giving me really the appropriate information to make a good sound decision. As you mentioned, some of the models that we've been using uh, in terms of risk assessment, you know, ingest the threat model to understand the underlying posture. Uh, and so the, the, the FUD, as it were, it is really what I, I don't like about the overall profession. Um, We've got to do a little bit better, I think, in terms of um, we, one, need to understand our own needs, right, From as an organization, protecting members, protecting our customers, uh, and then applying that judiciously and not just being taken in with uh, these elements where you'll, you know, uh, the next breach is, you know, the, the marketing material that's being used in order to, you know, get me to the top of your inbox or onto, the, you know, a phone call or into demo land for you to then show how we can prevent uh, these from happening with, uh, you know, whatever silver bullet that uh, is being promoted right. at the time. Yeah, that, that the noisiness of the 
you know, of the marketplace, right? It's, it's really a struggle for folks. And, it's, you know, and markets are inherently noisy, right? You have to have a way to distinguish yourself from the competition, of course. But, you know, the again, we're, we're, we're still a ways from being able to argue the way we might in other domains of risk, right? In terms of real probabilities, uh, strength of materials and things like that, right? That, that you know, th this is how you deal with this kind of problem and a little more, you know, we, ex we accept and we expect actually, right? Uh, solid science behind that. And so for all the technology that we have in cybersecurity, we're still struggling a bit to sort of express the science in a way. And again, we both have said it, right? It's a complicated problem. You know, I always said every uh, every risk model I looked at in cyber over the last several decades, doggone it gets screwed up because of that doggone active adversary. You know, they don't respect our models, right? They keep cheating. And so we have to dream up new ones. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are a lot of variables, right, to think about here. So it's not easy to express it. It's not that we're avoiding it. It's that it's, it legitimately is a hard technical problem to understand that, you know, by design, we're trying to abstract away the technical details, right? We're trying to by design, we're trying to connect things to make it more complicated and hence greater attack surface and, and harder to defend. So, yeah, I, I think that's uh, that is very, um, uh, you know, a, a bit of a struggle, right? This this sort of noise, which complicates the lives of executives who are looking for, you know, how am I doing? <laughs> well, you know, and then you have this sort of magical incantation of, you know, of, of things that are hard, really hard to, for, for them to grasp. And again, they're then they're in a position of competing investments you know, for this kind of risk versus that kind of risk. And so how do we help people with that? And that's the life that you live, right? That really the, where you spend your time if you're trying to convince boards and executives to to make uh, good decisions, right? To support them in their legitimate quest to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. Oh, why do I like it? Well, let's see. Um, well, I, I didn't start in it, right? I have a slide that I've used. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I started in ComSec. You know, that, so communication security, which became information security, computer security, information assurance, defensive information operations. You know, these were all the names of organizations I was in over the decades. And, and I said, I never actually changed jobs. We just kept reorganizing, right, to a bigger, uh, more complex and, and more interconnected problem. And uh, my desk never moved more than 50 feet during most of those jobs, you know. So so I didn't choose it. It sort of grew up with it. But I will say, you know, it's hard to imagine a more satisfying career path. You know, even, and it's obviously nothing I anticipated, right? It was just lucky breaks for me along the way. But, you know, the, the technology is just fascinating, right? It's, you know, it covers everything from mathematics to protocols to you know, to issues of software uh, safety and security and hardware design. Uh, but it's also uh, full of like fascinating people, right? just interesting people, you know, who are bright, opinionated, you know, clever, uh, both on the defense and the attack side. And so you get this sort of combination of fascinating chain and changeable technology, changing technology with interesting people. And then the last angle of that is what I call socially relevant. You know, this is becoming the way we share information, the way we do our banking, the way we buy things, and you know, every aspect of our lives. So you you can't separate that out from it. So it's like, wow, what a you know, what a career field, right? Who would have chosen such? Who could have known to choose such a path? I didn't choose such a path, obviously, because I'm not that smart. It was just kind of got to follow it. So it's this diversity of tech and people and relevance for me that that uh, makes it uh, exciting to be in, hard to walk away from.
Yeah, I, I'm kind of with you there. One of my, really the element, and it's just, I'm all about learning. So if there is a field where it's not the same as yesterday to today, you know, you, you just walk into cybersecurity and, you know, any of the incantations, as you, as you mentioned over the years uh, that has been uh, surrounding it is just absolutely fascinating. It, really, the way I look at it is um, there's an application of technology to an underlying problem to solve a particular issue and the connotation of that decision and the permeation of that through multiple elements within an organization. Just, you know, we've mentioned complexity uh, in some other areas, but here is, it's a great challenge to be a part of it and really no solution uh, ultimately because of those moving parts. So if you're not learning, you're not really doing in, in a lot of cases with the, with the field. Uh, and uh, it's just fascinating to see the technologies and, you know, in my career, just, you know, the, the implementation and the utilization of cloud infrastructure, you know, mm -hmm. complete revelation. I, I, I first started my career where email started to, you know, become the number one method of communication. Um, and that was, you know, a, an inflection point, as it were, and, and then cloud infrastructure and the number and elements of different services and how it's grown. Um, just, uh, you know, what Amazon and Microsoft and others are doing in the space and Google, it, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and it's... Uh, it leads me into different areas and where I mentioned data and now it's, you know, mm -hmm. data manager, analytics, data science and, you know, the information age and being able to, um, you know, get information from all of this infrastructure to allow me to make, you know, ultimate decisions, as it were, or, or at least base them on uh, a premise of a risk model uh, to make judicious decision is uh, uh, it's enthralling. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point, John. I mean, this, this sort of like lifelong learning, right? You're you know, this this is not a you know a, a discipline with hundreds of years of science behind it, and we're you know we go to the feet of the masters to learn, right? So we can sort of help to advance the the, the science a little further. I, I remember uh, clearly, I think it was sort of mid late nineties, what I called the um, uh, skill inversion became clear to me as a, some of sort of mid level supervisor, and uh, as things started to go to the web and you know, the modern technologies came out, it occurred to me that the kids coming out of school, and I say this respectfully, right? The kids coming out of school had really highly relevant job skills for today's, you know, for that day's uh, technology issues and security. And, and the the folks like me, right, who've been on the job for a decade or more, right, our you know our graduate school days were long past. I took the one networking course they offered in grad school, and it was all irrelevant. And it was all long bypassed by by security by uh, technology's march. So I found myself like, wait a minute, all these kids, you know, they are, they grew up in this stuff. And that was not true for my generation. And so how do I uh, bring them aboard, right, to, to help leverage the, the, the sort of current learning that they have, at the same time help them develop the kind of experience and good judgment that you get with your experienced workforce. So I think this, this idea of lifelong learning is, is I think, a wonderful uh, aspect of, you know, what... Uh, what is attractive about the field, right? We're not done. You know, there's just so much more that we're we're figuring out, and it again, it touches all these things like economics and, risk, as you said, risk modeling and so forth that are sort of b building entire new branches off the tree. I mean, in itself, is becoming specialized in specific areas. It's uh, absolutely yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So then, Tony, that leads me into uh, question four: What don't you like about cybersecurity? 
wow, okay, gosh, I'll see. I hope I don't hurt anyone's feelings here. Let me try to think. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I, I don't like Sean, and I say this, um, you know, uh, uh, respectfully. I, I think we have failed a lot of our economy. You know, that is uh, small businesses, right? We see it with small state and local governments and watching the struggles. You know, these are legitimate right, challenges, big challenges and, and big struggles. And I grew up in what I would call the, uh, the build-it-yourself or model of security. You know, you buy technology, you go get some security guidance or you bring in a consultant and you sort of build your own security, right, within your enterprise as opposed to being sort of built into the infrastructure. And, you know, we've... we've we don't advertise it this way, but a line that you know we use when the leadership talks occasionally is something along the something like this: uh, most of our economy cannot defend itself under the current model. Right? It's not because they're bad or they're lazy or they don't care. It's that you know most of our businesses in this economy, right, by whatever measure they use this as small business administration or whatever. The the majority of companies by number, by dollar, etc., uh, either don't have a security professional on staff or never will have a security professional on staff. And they're not going to bring in expensive consultants. They're not going to bring in high dollar tools, right? Because they can't create the infrastructure to take advantage of threat intelligence. And so, you know, they they cannot uh, defend themselves in this model. We've really failed them, right? That, that uh, we ask people to, to do it. We try to educate them and make them aware and make more tools available, make them available cheaply. But that is a like, uh, I used to use the phrase back in my government days, that's like throwing rocks in the ocean, trying to change the water level. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's too vast a problem and you can't do it kind of thing at a time, right? By educating, by training, by equipping and buying tools. So yes, there are certainly exceptional companies that, you know, are doing well and can defend themselves, but that's not true for most. So there's a feeling, you know, for all the great goodness and great people and you know, excitement that I have about the business, some days I just go, man, we have, you know, we have let down a big part of our economy. You know, we, we are, we're asking them to do something that is really beyond their ability to do. And again, it's not because they're bad. It's because we've, it's so complicated. And so we need a different way to think about this problem and how it gets done. And as you know, and, you know, for the last couple of years now, we have talked a lot at CIS and done a lot at CIS around what, what we call the cyber underserved Right. And, and people have different phrases for that. The cyber poverty line is a popular one and so forth. But, you know, how can we help folks who really are not going to be able to defend themselves in that traditional manner, the way that you know folks like us grew up? I'm right there with you, Tony. Uh, this is, you know, I love learning. And obviously it's mm -hmm. this continuous challenge. But like you say, this is not a solved problem. Right. It, it You just you make your best effort and, you know, you apply the necessary controls that you think are right. Uh, and at mm -hmm. a point in time, you know, those controls um, themselves become obsolete just either through the technology, through obsolescence, through new tactics and techniques. And it it's just amazing. And I, I think you put it perfectly is um, it's we've not really helped everyone to be kind of on the same level, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of security, in terms of an understanding uh, of what this actually means uh, with respect to the economy, with respect to, you know, requisite businesses, which this is, you know, in a lot of cases, this is not their skill set, right? And an expectation for them 
to learn and apply this skill set is, you know, it's a specialization. It's not right. something that is inherently known. Uh, and I get, you know, in some cases, small businesses, you know, they, they've got to learn accounting to be able to obviously understand their business and its underlying health. Um, but having the ex same expectations in a technical arena, especially given the predominance of what it means to be connected, you know, online, mm -hmm. managing this uh, information, this technology, uh, it's not really the same conversation. And uh, like you say, I don't think we've had um, necessarily the greatest impact. And unfortunately for me, um, I'm not really sure how to solve it. You know, you, you think about the models that could be in, pl in play and, okay, let's just you know manage it for them and take all the responsibility off of their hand. I don't know necessarily that's the right decision. Um, I think it helps up to a certain point. Um, so yeah, that, that, that would be my, what I, I don't really like is, uh, is this is a very complex, unsolvable problem. You, you know, I, I'll look at respectfully my career is, you know, I did the best I could in the time with the technology, the resources, right. and I, I, you know, applied what I could during that time. But, you know, after I'm there, after I'm gone, it, the problems are going to remain as it were. And it's, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, that's a, maybe that's difficult a, to get your mind around. But, no, that's yeah. a complex line for us to, you know, again, if yeah. you look at the history of other um, risky domains, you know, everything from driving a car to flying in a plane and so forth. And, you yep. know, there, there is, there's, it, at the end of the day, there will be some mix of behaviors, right? Some, some attributes that are provided by the infrastructure, some things that are regulated by the government, some things that are encouraged or discouraged by the market, and some that are about personal responsibility, right? So, so yeah, saying that small businesses can't defend themselves doesn't absolve them of their sort of fiscal responsibilities or the regulatory reporting requirements. And so we'd still have to kind of figure out what that balance is here. And I think, uh, you know, and I think a lot of this has come to light in the supply chain discussions, right? And uh, you, you, my guess is you're right in the middle of that because we are both a supplier to others who are, you know, demanding answers to their questions about our, our uh, reliability as a cyber partner. And then we are also one, you know, a company that uses the services of other companies, right? You must see both sides of that. And we live and breathe this stuff. And my guess is it's non-trivial to be able to answer those questions and to uh, to answer and ask those questions, right? And to be able to kind of sort that those issues out. And so, you know, if, if it's work for us, imagine what it's like for those that don't have the kind of expertise that you have and your staff has. Yeah, the, the supply chain security is obviously a, uh, it's funny because we'll, um, in that same uh, workflow is, you know, we're getting multiple questionnaires, though could be, you know, 20 questions asking about security posture. And then you'll get some that are 300. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, there's no real balance between the two. And the questions that are being asked um, are so general that in the services that we supply in, in the underlying uh, uh, software, you know, a lot of the questions, it's not applicable. You, you know, you're it, it's like you're asking a bank uh, and you're, you know, asking a service provider for software and it's just not the same vernacular. It's not the same questions that you should be asking both. And so I've seen, obviously, elements of tailoring that's required. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've felt through that crack myself in terms of, oh, I'll just put a set of questions together to show due diligence, you know, right. receive it back. And then it's, well, I asked the wrong question. This is what I should have asked. And, and it's, you know, that process of learning uh, and that we've, you know, as an industry need to apply because uh, 
like you say, uh, the supply chain security problem itself is, you know, just adds a whole nother dimension of complexity. So it's not only my own systems, but now I'm looking what I've procured and built this system from to make sure that, you know, the underlying foundation is secure and uh, and is solid. Uh, and so it, it brings up more questions. If that is not solid, as we've obviously seen, you know, in the industry, it's... Uh, how do I go about rectifying that? Because if I based a number of controls and a number of my uh, posture assessments against having this in place, and it's you know either the telemetry is not right or the underlying system is vulnerable, um, what does that do to everything else? So it's yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is going to be depressing, Sean. We have to, we need to cheer ourselves up. We've got to cheer ourselves up a little bit. Sure. <laughs> so let me then go to. Um, then this question uh, was really about uh, what source of data, log, or telemetry do you love, you know, from a decision-making perspective, for a posture mm -hmm. assessment perspective? Okay. I, I think, um, I'm not sure the generic type to call it, but I'll call it, uh, given that my favorite control was about secure configuration, uh, I think that the term a lot of folks use is configuration drift. So however one might measure that, right? So the the goal is not perfection here. The goal is to manage. Uh, let me take this abstractly. Um, uh, components which have not perfect but relatively well known security properties, right? They that they block the sort of common uh, mass market attacks that are happening. And once you manage to that, establish some security baseline, and you know our, our obviously our worked example of the CIS benchmarks then you want to put that in place and manage to it, recognizing there could be exceptions and therefore you want to manage those exceptions also. But to, to me, the kind of telemetry I would want to know is when does that change? What happens, right? A reinstallation, a patching, something that a program that you know attempts to uh, make a change in configuration and an operator activity. And that is really important information because at the end of the day, security is kind of a composition problem, right? You've got lots of components and configuring a Windows desktop well does not make the security problem go, go, go away. It bounds it, right? And you're sort of, loosely speaking, you're allocating security functions from you know, the desktop client, the, the, the mail server, the perimeter filtering device, right? All those have their own issues around management and configuration. And so you don't, they're not going to be perfect, but you want them to be the known state to which you're managing. So anything that drifts away from that is important to know. And at least in the world I grew up in, you know, a large like defense uh, kind of enterprises, it was often entirely separate groups of policies and people that managed those different kinds of devices, right? So the people that managed the desktops were different than the server folks, than the perimeter folks. And so one might make a change that would have tremendous rippling security implications, but no one else knew it until something bad happened. And so you, you have to be able to kind of juggle all these things. So the idea of you know, I want to get to a place where I'm, I'm managing things with known properties and I want to know when so something about that changes, right? The attributes change in this case, configuration. So so you can get that through lots of different kinds of tools, uh, you know, file integrity management kind of stuff, change management tools, uh, even simple hashing and that sort of stuff can be. So that was the idea to me. I think So uh, that wasn't very crisply stated, but the idea there is, is around any telemetry that helps you understand configuration drift. That's definitely, uh, that would be in my at least top three. The other one I'll go to, I, I, again, I don't want to use yours, is uh, 
the implementation and the management of EDR, so the endpoint detection and response capabilities, mm -hmm. if that is done well, I think there's a, a fantastic volume of information gotcha. that can be used. You know, it can trigger, it can be uh, awareness alerting, or just simply from an audit and control perspective as an assessment mm -hmm. capability, I think is uh, really a well done play on managing multiple areas of data generation from the endpoint, right? Um, into, you know, what I, you know, I'll use the industry term, the single pane of glass, but it, it gives you such a good, um, really representative view of an organization, if done correctly. And again, we've got to talk about the configuration, the application of the rules and, and management of those. But when done correctly, uh, I think is an excellent source uh, of uh, telemetry for any yeah, organization. Yeah. Nope, well said. Yeah. Okay, Tony. Here's, here's another big one for you. Uh -oh. What is the biggest waste of time in cybersecurity? Ooh, biggest waste of time. That's great. <laughs> um, I think you hinted at it earlier, Sean. Uh, the, I'll call it the pursuit of perfection. You know, that is, uh, I often say that uh, perfection, this is a case where perfection is, in fact, the enemy of the good in security, right? Partly because of a wizardry model. Oh, Sean, you, you fixed uh, 10 things about the system. You know, the wizard says, ah, I got you. I got three more or five more, or you know, and it's a never-ending game. And I was I used to joke that uh, when the executive says, "Well, how much how much do I need to spend to get to security, Mister Wizard?" and I said, "Well, I was trained to give the standard answer. The answer is more. Whatever you've spent is not enough. You need to spend more. You know, and it, so that is um, you know that's about wizardry, but it's not very helpful. And so perfection, right?" You know, I, so many times I've seen folks think, well, we can't, uh, you know, they struggle with things like inventory of hardware. Well, perfection is not the goal, right? We don't expect perfection, by the way, in any other domain of risk. You know, a company doesn't, a large company literally doesn't know 100% of its inventory all the time, right? There, there's always, you know, uh, decision uncertainty, we might call it, you know, that is the float loss losses and you know, sort of the gray areas and uncertainties. And like in the military context, this is when I first started to look at this some years ago. Um, when the commander says, are we ready to go to war? You know, a project force is the polite term. Uh, you know, it's, and someone says, yes, it's not because they literally know the status of every airplane and its uh, maintenance and the status of every gun on every airplane. And you know, they don't, we don't literally know all that, right? Because there's a lot of uncertainty and things change from the last time you looked at them. And so you, but but we have learned over time to develop what I'll call decision intuition. That is, it's sort of good enough for the purpose of making that decision. It doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, no one expects it to be. You know, when I first stumbled onto this, I have to share the story. My dad was a supply sergeant in the army. You know, that was his uh, career. And he once joked to me, he said, yeah, the, uh, the inspector is coming this week. And so I have to take all the equipment that I have that's not on the books, load it up in a deuce and a half, right? A big army truck. And I send it for a drive while the inspector is here so that he doesn't see any of that stuff. Because if you know, because if I don't have that stuff, I have nothing to trade with the other supply sergeant, right? For the stuff that's not, that they can't find during his inspection, you know? And so there was always this decision float, right? This uncertainty about the physical inventory. Um, and that's a true story, by the way, that, that <laughs> always reminds me to be a little humble about this, right? That is, don't, don't overthink this for perfection when really what we're trying to do is make a decision. And so we, we, you know, we want to obviously, we, we want to narrow down the uncertainty of our decision, 
but we also have to do so I'll call sensitivity analysis to decide how how much does it really matter if if we're a percent off, right? And you know, a percent can be a big thing in our business. I'm not I'm not downplaying that, but I've just watched lots of money and lots of our systems that are in place, right? Of both verifying and re-verifying and independently auditing. And you know, there can be a tremendous amount of rework and reinterpretation of requirements, right, that are written at a vague level. And therefore, I need an army of wizards to interpret the tea leaves of what, you know, whatever the you know, the security framework was intended. And then, oh, but Sean, you you attempted to interpret that framework, but the next auditor that comes in decides he doesn't like your interpretation. So he has his own interpretation, right? So those are just tremendously, and th those are all well-intended to get us get us closer to security perfection. But I think that's, that's the problem. We're, we're overthinking some things uh, because we can, right? Because we, you know, those are things that, sort of give us comfort in the decision, but in fact, provide very little value. So that sounds more negative than I intended, but but I think you know what I mean around that. <laughs> no, 100%, 100%, yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Again, one of the other things to to, to add on there is uh, one of the things I catch my, even myself doing is managing controls to compliance and not to security. I've, mm. You have to catch yourself if you're doing this yeah. because it's the underlying intention of any framework. I think you, you put it really well is it's it's about managing your risk appropriately with an underlying control that meets a set of criteria. And again, there's interpretation of that criteria depending on what you're using as your reference, depending on even your own experience can lead you to thinking about things maybe differently. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, you've got auditor variability in terms of the way they understand what the control is meant to do. And so I always you know, have to step back at some points in time. We have a great GRC program in the organization. Obviously mm -hmm. a foundation is the CIS controls with other frameworks as elements for regulatory compliance and things of that nature. Uh, and I really have to then stop and look at it from security value and not fulfilling a checkbox. That's okay. not the point. Mm -hmm. I think you put that so well, is that trying to be perfect in the checkbox arena is the completely wrong adage. And we have to look at the security value that we're getting from a respective control. And if it's not really providing us that value, I think that ultimately we have to ask the question why, um, and have we either misinterpreted what the control is looking for, or can it be re-architected, re-engineered in a way that can contribute to overall really risk mitigation in a lot of cases to implement an underlying security control. And so that's what I have to catch myself doing because it's a waste of my time to think of checkboxes and think of compliance as simply as an activity. It has ultimately, um, it's for security sake, not right. for respectively an underlying framework's compliance uh, yeah, perfection. You know, Sean, you're, you're right in the middle of those kinds of, you know, that, that kind of work and that kind of uh, expression of the work, right? How it's presented to others. And that must be a... Uh, a challenge sometimes, right? Because there's this, you know, maybe from the executive level, a desire to sort of get the auditor out the door, right? Or get through the certification process or whatever. And it is easy to lose sight. You know, it's trite, but true, right? People say, well, compliance doesn't equal security. Well, thanks very much for that helpful insight by my friend. But, you know, <laughs> that, that, of course that's true. But as you said, you, you have to survive both, right? At, at the end of the day, you have to kind of deal with the system and I guess my experience has been that the the system, right, the bureaucracy of approval and the regulatory 
Chekhov and so forth are, are very demanding, right? They, they are sort of closer to what bosses care about, right? Because they're very concrete. They could lead, lead to uh, financial responsibility, you know, in a, you know, in a Sarbanes-Oxley kind of case and so forth. So it's a really uh, interesting uh, a dilemma for folks like you, and you expressed it well, right? You don't want to lose sight of <laughs> what, what you're actually trying to do while you do right. what you have to do, right? To, to keep your job and to keep the boss uh, at bay. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah well, good, okay. good for you. Your secret's right, safe for right. me, Sean. You're doing fantastic. Great, great work. Too. <laughs> okay, so question seven, Tony, mm -hmm. is what profession other than your own would mm -hmm. you like to attempt? Would I like to at this stage in my life, or just in at general? this stage? Oh this my stage. gosh! Okay. Let's see. <laughs> at this stage in my life. I, every once in a while, I had this vague dream of going back to be like a math teacher in high school, <laughs> but but maybe I'm long past that. I just thought that would, you know, would have been a fun thing to do. Uh, and I came back to it a couple points during my life, you know, as a perhaps a side thing to do, but just never 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 uh, materialized you know I would say it was more of a, a vague notion than a uh, than an alternate career path or, or other profession I, I'd uh, also say I, I I didn't have any high hopes for it but a dream that you know to do more something in the more uh, arts field you know in music uh, you know in particular right I have a have a uh, spectacularly unsuccessful career as a garage rock and roller and bar band <laughs> a singer and so forth, uh, you know, but I never, never gave up my day job and never will. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> you know, it all worked out for me the way it was supposed to. So I'll have to say nothing that really leaps out that from that perspective. Okay. How about you? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, um, you know, you'll, I, let, I'll do a, a couple variants. So, <laughs> sure. um, what I would have said was, you know, that the uh, race car driver, just driving ah. fast, thrill the adrenaline, <laughs> yes. why not? Uh, that'll be the, the ultimate one. Again, I'm not mm -hmm. leaving my day job and, uh, you know, never go above uh, 65. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, the other one is uh, I really had an interest uh, growing up and, and e even now is uh, game development. Um, it hmm. was always okay. something that, you know, I, I guess I grew up in the Nintendo generation. Um, and it was always something that intrigued me. Um, and I, I pursued it a, a little bit. And uh, let me say, um, I would need you as my math professor to get me through the mathematics <laughs> required to be a good game developer. Uh. Um, so uh, I, I think I left that and uh, uh. I'm not going to leave my day job either, Tony. So <laughs> So what was what what was the attraction of that field for you, Sean? Is it the sure kind of the design or the psychology of the gaming, right, keeping people's attention, sure. or the coding and the construction, or all the above? I think it was the coding, but also the creativity. You know, mm -hmm. it was okay. the 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 ability to tell an interactive story, mm -hmm. uh, and so obviously through Mario and th things of that nature, it was. It always captured a sense of creativity with me. So, you know, kind mm -hmm. of as you mentioned, yes. the creative field was, you know, the, there's an element and there's an artistry not only behind the coding, but the underlying gaming elements that when they come together, are um, it, it's a great form of just interactive uh, entertainment that, yeah. uh, that, that kind of enthralled me as well. So maybe there is an underlying psychology to it, but um, as, uh, as I mentioned, you know, it was really um 
you know, it, it was the thing to have, it was the thing to do kind of as I was growing up. And sure. uh, it just, you know, kind of permeated that way that uh, you know, this could be a field. It was, I think I had started, and, and now I am going to age myself, but I'd started programming um, on a Commodore VIC-20. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a long time ago. This was a hand-me-down from my cousin. And so I'd started there, did nothing with it, um, was just uh, obviously, again, I'm not going to leave my day job uh, for, for my coding <laughs> capability. Um, but that's where it, it all started from there. And, um, you know, in even in school, I talked to a career guidance counselor about what I needed to do. And really, they had no idea. They say, well, we, we just assume computer science uh, and go, you know, attempt that. Uh-huh. And um, so it was very interesting. But it, it, it just captured my imagination. Let me put it yeah, that way. Yeah, right. a lot of, lot of interesting elements to that. Yeah. yeah. A, good, a good dream. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're the right, you're exactly a good the right generation for it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now I'm going to flip it 180 right. degrees. What profession would you not like to do? Not like to do. Um, I would say I, I thought about this at some point, sort of earlier in my professional career, about going into academia. You know hmm. that, uh, you know maybe pursuing a PhD and um, g- going into research. And it took me a while to realize that I'm, I would uh, be terrible at it. <laughs> that I, I was never that interested in any one thing to study it hard enough to do that thing. If you get my drift, right? That uh, I'm a I'm a dabbler by nature and uh, easily distracted. So I found myself, you know, again following the the technology path that led me on the career that I'm at. But I had thought about that for a while, and I just realized, wow, I would have been miserable doing, you know, if I'd have actually <laughs> taken that. That would have been a terrible move, you know. Whether it was, I always loved history, for example, also in, uh, sure. in undergraduate as an undergraduate. And I thought, oh, what a, what a terrible choice that would have been. Yeah, you know, number one, I would again, I wouldn't have been very good, and I would have been miserable the, the whole way <laughs> because I've been just dying to go next door to the science building and see what was happening there, and then to the psychology, and you know, I'm just by nature get get easily distracted. So I, but it was a sort of a vague notion for a while, but I, I, I wisened up pretty quickly and realized it was not for me. Gotcha, mm-hmm. gotcha. Now for me. They would be um, kind of healthcare, uh, and uh, I'll give you the reason why. So my mother was a, um, what we would call, uh, so I grew up in England, uh, was uh, an operating theater, but here it's the OR, or the Mm -hmm. operating room. She was a a nurse, OR nurse, and uh, would basically describe the, the, um, the cases that she had worked on. Uh, and so that was always the conversation. And I was, I, I'm no way cut out for that kind of work. <laughs> uh, it just, it is not in my wheelhouse. And, uh, you know, and she was very good. Uh, excellent nurse had done her training in Brooklyn, actually, at Maimonides. And um, just some of the stories she would have. I mean, it's fascinating, but it, it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things, you know, I'm I'm not going to be able to do that. That that that's not for me. So that was always uh, always something I uh, couldn't do. But completely respect those that can do it, uh, and uh, all that they've done for us is uh, fantastic. Especially, obviously, through the last year and a half, healthcare uh, have been phenomenal. But uh, yes. it is not Absolutely. in my wheelhouse, unfortunately. No, no, I, I hear you too. It, it takes a special breed of person. <laughs> my my wife jokes. She, occasionally, she'll ask me to help her clip her uh, her uh, earring. 
you know, just pierced ears. She said, and yep. she says she does that just to watch me go pale. I'm, I'm about to pass out <laughs> just from the the act of you know, her having a hole in her ear. So I would not be uh, any better than you at the uh, at dealing with yes. operation operating room uh, setting. Fantastic. Uh, okay, and then for our final question. Okay, is when you reach the end of your career, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, that's a pretty deep, uh, deep thinking one, Sean. Pretty deep. So, you know, I, um, I would like to think I'd be remembered. Uh, you know, my goal has been to be in public service, okay, which covers a lot of ground. You know, I mean, I grew up. Uh, my my dad was an army sergeant, then went into the um, was a department of the army civilian for the for a second career, and that always felt about right to me. <laughs> You know, to be in some aspect of, of public service, and I never really looked anywhere outside of that. And one of the reasons I love being at CIS is that uh, it feels like a continuation of that. You know, that is as a nonprofit, right? That we we have the same kind of discussions that I'm used to in government. We have the same kind of how are we going to save the world this month kind of discussions, and that that feels right. You know, that is I'm in the right kind of thing, and that's not to, you know, I. Uh, I once told a friend of mine in business, he, we were talking about some issue and he's you know, a guy for one of the big um, anti-malware companies. And he asked me, did I ever regret staying in government? You know, you could have done really well in business. Whether I said, no, no. I said, you know, I, while I'm spending my career of uh, fighting for democracy, I'm also fighting for capitalism. <laughs> I have no problem if you're doing really well, right? And making lots of money. That's good. You know, that's, that's good for everyone. I'm, I'm excited to be a part of that, but I found my place, you know, that, has both a, it's been a good career, obviously, for me, but it's also been psychologically very, very uh, satisfying. And as a companion thought to that, I'd like to say I did it in a way that was consistent with my personal values. You know, I never, yep. I, I feel like this is sort of what I am. And I try to bring that to the job in every dimension of my job, right? So it's not a, you know, we, we work in highly technical fields, you know, both of us, Sean, but you know, as we as we both know, right? It's people and relationships and the ability to communicate, and it's the whole package of skills and personal attributes that we bring that allow us to succeed. And so, I'd like to think that I sort of get to the end feeling like I did it, you know, my way in the in a way, in a manner that is consistent with service to my community, right? To the people around me, to the my family, to my friends, to my community, uh, to um, you know, to the nation at large, the community, the internet community at large. I, I'd like to feel like, you know, I would be remembered well that way. Absolutely. No, 100%. 100%. Mm-hmm. And I think you are already. Um, uh, the work that you've done and, uh, again, even the privilege of getting to be on these uh, podcasts with you and obviously work with you and, and learn from you is uh it's absolutely fantastic. It, it, it's truly an honor. So very, very kind, I, I think you're Appreciate already there. So. <laughs> absolutely. All right, so tell me about what, how you want to be remembered at the end of your Yes. Career. Well, I think in, in, in my case, it was he was never shy about trying to improve. Absolutely. And I say that because it's, um, you know, some people could be in some cases, you know, offended if there's something, you know, that they're not doing right. Uh, you know, a been in the career a number of years, but you're you're doing this wrong. But I've always taken it upon myself, and I guess maybe it goes to the continuous learning. Is you know I'm not perfect, and perfect is not the goal, but to be good and to give my best. And if there's areas where I'm weak and that I need to improve, and and that's either identified by myself or by others, 
I love that feedback uh, mm-hmm. and I use it to, to propel, you know, kind of forward either myself, uh, you know, others around me uh, within the team uh, and others, again, hopefully within the community is, you know, we, we're always trying to do better. And, and I've taken that on as kind of a, uh, a personal mantra, I guess you would say, is mm-hmm. that uh, I'm always learning. Uh, I have to. Uh, and I'm never shy of being, yep, if I don't know it, um, I either know somebody that does, or I'm more than happy to take that on and learn about what this is um, to provide you an answer that's either satisfactory or to provide you uh, an element of um, what I'll call uh, satisfaction in terms of that, you know, I, I've applied or I'm at least going in the right direction in terms of what others want to see. So that would oh, be my. No, that's excellent, Sean. I think consistent with you know with our interaction, uh, you know, it takes a certain um, a significant amount of humility, right, to uh, accept that you don't know it all, or that you only have to pretend to know it all, right. So to be open to that also uh, uh, requires a certain level of vulnerability, right, to uh, to admit that you don't all know. And, there, and we all know plenty of people who who struggle with that, right, who cannot admit that they don't, or they believe that a sign of weakness as opposed to a sign of uh, humility and openness. And I know I had a, a very close colleague once, uh, many, many years ago, she said one thing to me that I never forgot was, she said that, Tony, the most important professional attribute is uh, self-awareness, you know, is to be aware of yourself, right? As she said, especially as a supervisor, the impact that your words have on people or that your actions have, right? And to be aware of it, to, to see how others see you and to decide what to do about that, right? To to hear that feedback and decide, do I need to change? And that you know that's that's a whole information loop that uh, you know is for many of us is a struggle to build, right? To think our way through those things, and yet it's really powerful. It allows you to to stand back a little bit from yourself, right? Your ego, and to look at yourself as a learning, growing you know machine, the way you described yourself, right? Which is I think again very consistent with how I know you. That that allows you to be, you know, to not take feedback as sort of negative personally, but as opportunities right. to say, what, why did they say that? What am I learning from this, right? What will I take from this? And uh, again, it gives you the opportunity then to say, you know what, I, I think I could do this differently and get a different reaction or, you know, however you process. But you start to think of this as a, as a loop that you're now managing, you know, the way we think of a technical loop, but it's really about your in your uh, interaction with others and and how you deal with ideas and so forth. So I think that's wonderful. And, and it's reflected in these questions here. So, so <laughs> as, we, as we approach the end of our time. And so again, I, I when I first saw the list, I, saw, I, I had to admit, you know, oh, you had another list of like clever questions and it's all good. And I thought about it, wow. Okay, this is going to take us to some pretty heavy places. And I think it ex- has exactly done that. That is, it, it has helped... Um, dig down a little deeper, as you intended, to think about the person and our our sort of core philosophy around mission and what we're trying to achieve, you know, uh, both as as part of an institution, but as professionals, right? What are we trying to get at it? So I, I'm really very impressed by your... Uh, so it, it, the Atkinson 9 deserves its fame. We will be uh, <laughs> featured at a psychologist's office near you anytime soon. But I really appreciate the chance to go through all these ideas with you, Sean. And uh, any last thoughts that you have on kind of this and uh, your use of this or any things you've learned over the the time that you've used these questions? 
Yeah, it's it's amazing the diversity in the cybersecurity community as I speak with uh, others about these questions and things of that nature. And it's uh, it's great to actually go in depth. Usually it's a very quick answer, but being able to discuss those with you, Tony, has been uh, it's been fascinating. So thank you very much. Oh, my, my pleasure. And same right back back to you there. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, we could have done the quick answers here, but I really enjoyed the conversation. And, you know, as we both said, right, this this business, the high tech business is really about about people. And so to to think about ourselves as individuals, right, and the way we interact, I think has been very helpful and very insightful for, for both of us. So, yep, just another bonus, bonus of co-hosting these uh, podcasts with you, Sean. Again, I'm Equally grateful and uh, appreciate the chance. So we're going to wrap that up. That's about it for today. Uh, we uh, took a little change of pace today, but you know, using Sean's Atkinson Nine as a as a framework for discussion, uh, I think uh, a lot of uh, heavy thoughts came out about the, both the role of CIS and us as individuals and. Uh, you know, what we're trying to achieve here. So for that, I'm grateful, Sean. And so for the rest of you, uh, please tune in uh, to the next episode, subscribe, do all the things that people do with podcasts. And we look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.